Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at my lovely colleague, Dr. Maria Trent. Hi, Maria. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Well, folks, Dr. Maria Trent is not only our professor of pediatrics and a Bloomberg professor of American Health Pediatrics and Nursing in the Bloomberg School of Public Health, she's also our Senior Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusive Excellence, and she's a Director of the Division of Adolescent Young Adult Medicine here at Hopkins, and she's an Adolescent Health T32 Training Director. So all that, lots of alphabet soup after Dr. Trent's name, Yale, Harvard, UNC Chapel Hill, Hopkins, she's done it all. We were just spent some time talking about athletes and her daughter is a volleyball player in North Carolina. And so we, we were talking about a lot of um a lot of things in our, our cultural backgrounds, our identities. And we thought we'd have a conversation around how diversity and an inclusive mindset advances science. And we're going to let Maria talk about what she was, you know, we've been chatting about cognitive diversity as a no-braining head start in, in science. And Maria, why don't you take it take it off here and take it off from here and tell us about um, how you think about the diversity and the framework and the lens really um, builds and grows our science. Sure. Well, I, I think the first thing I'll say is that I think there's a lot of data that we can draw from in order to uh, really unpack this notion of diversity and and inclusion and how people participate in our society. Um, the United States, whether people are formally credited for their work or not, there are people from diverse backgrounds who have contributed to the advancement of our society. And oftentimes we hear about it really retrospectively, not necessarily in the presence. And I think we have found it to be very powerful and understanding um, how those individuals have have shaped uh, science and innovation. Um, I think that one of the most popularized stories, and I think about kids because we talk about this, young people really have loved this, this story. I touched my son. He was like, I want to be a mathematician um, after watching the, the movie. And, and we read part of the book uh, together of uh, Hidden Figures. Um, and he presented on one of the mathematicians for um um, one of the presentations he's, he had at school. And there's just really this notion. I, I really think that, you know, that story is really one about how you create a professional environment that begins to include people and allow them to take advantage of their gifts very thoughtfully and their training very thoughtfully um, so that we can advance um, science and discovery, um, which are intrinsic really to our mission here at Hopkins. Um, we have big goals and a big vision for what we want to do here in terms of how we're going to shape human health through both clinical care and in both through science, but also in who we train and how we train people to serve uh, the next generation of patients. Um, and as a pediatrician, I'm very cognizant that the next generation of our patients are going to be very diverse. We'll have, the, you know, in 2050, we'll have the most diverse uh, cohort of pediatric patients than we've ever seen uh, in the United States. And so preparing people to be in that workforce, I think is also a part of what we envision here for our work. So I think that this notion, uh, so I think we talked about, you know, how, how, how diversity fits in. There are lots of different types of diversity. I just have to say that, first of all, um, we think a lot about um, discipline diversity uh, when we work on teams, for example, in the hospital. Uh, we talked about really how 
patients uh, benefit when the team that comes to see them in the morning. So we have these interdisciplinary rounds where the physician is there, the nurse is there, but maybe the pharmacist is there, the trainees are there, um, maybe a consultant. So they might say, you know, I need adolescent medicine to come and we're going to talk about one of your patients at 930. Could you come on to rounds with us? And so I'm there. Our fellow is there. Uh, social work is there. Um, and we're all there together. And I think for a patient who really has significant health needs and perhaps social needs, and there's this complexity between the two, when we're all there together with the patient, especially if their family is there with them, and we're all working together for that patient, the outcome is consistently so much better. And so there's that level of discipline diversity, first of all, that we have to have in healthcare and that we have to have in research. I have a research team. I've been working with the same team for over a decade, maybe longer. Um, we ha- we're all very different um, uh, in many ways from a discipline perspective. There are people who are on the team who, you know, they're they're scientists. So I'm a clinician scientist, which means I design studies that really are related to optimizing patient outcomes through um, randomized controlled trials or clinical trials, behavioral trials, um, in which we try to tweak something and how we're delivering care in order to try to make the outcomes consistently better for the whole. And uh, but on that team, you know, I'm there, but, you know, I do nursing research. And so I have the nursing people on the team who really innovate how we're delivering services in the community. We have outreach workers. So people who know how to talk to people who can find people um, in a tough city. Uh, We have people who are adept at just talking to people and explaining the study to them. I have to say our our school of nursing students are amazing at that. Uh, We have some some, some higher research assistants that are on our staff regularly, but I have worked with school of nursing students who have been research assistants um, with me for, for, again, over a decade. And we have bench scientists. So then I try to innovate this notion of what novel can we bring into our clinical science? So there's a whole team over at the Johns Hopkins um, STD laboratory and uh, that works with our team. They are bench scientists. And so we are taking new scientific discovery and we're trying to put it into the field to optimize people's outcomes. And so that that's a lot of professional discipline and cognitive diversity. But there is also substantial gender, sexual orientation, and racial ethnic diversity on our team. And uh, we wrote about, we actually wrote about what made our team so special because someone said, I can't believe you have that kind of um, retention yeah. mm-hmm. rate in this study. You know, I went to the CDC and I presented today. They were like, <laughs> they were like I can't believe you have this kind of retention in teenagers, in urban community, for young people who are often living on the fringes. How are you able to keep these people in the study? And there are two reasons. Okay, one is this diversity of skill sets and understanding of the community and life experience and style and how you manage people and each other that we bring to the table. But the other piece of it really is we align on one thing, whatever it takes. And that and that became when we were talking about it, you say, you know, whatever it takes, we follow our protocol, but to the best of our ability, we do the whatever it takes to make that protocol work for them, 
in a place like Baltimore. And that means we have to design the study for them. So I need people who understand the neighborhood, the community, the safety factors. You know, how can we execute this in real world? So our, our project lead uh, manager, you know, he understands who to hire, what are the right people that will work on this team. He lets me know if something happens. You know, we kept this team together during COVID. We would meet every week. Even if we didn't have one new patient that week, we would still meet. We would talk about what was happening, what we could be doing otherwise. So I think it's really that diversity of people um, that has made this work for us. But it requires that you see people beyond sometimes, I think, what you see on the resume. And I think that that from a from a from a leadership perspective you have to think about what the attributes that a person brings to the table are so that and, and whether or not they map on to the work that you want to do. Marie. There's also a ton of research on, on this notion of cognitive diversity. So we can all agree, you know, you want people who are well-trained and have evidence of that. Their CV looks good or their transcript looks great. They wrote a great personal essay if it's a trainee. Um, you want all that stuff. But sometimes people who look good on paper, there are other questions that I ask people of like, uh, what are you working on right now? Or uh, tell me about a time that was difficult for you and how you handled it. Um, I listened to someone um, the other day tell the story about uh, a job interview where they were talking to two people. And uh, he, he said that there was this person who came and said, oh yeah, I took a class on that and here's your answer right here. And then the second person uh, didn't know the answer, but but said, let me take a moment. And that person went out and did research in real time to find out what, what the answer was. And they came in with the approximate answer that was similar to the person that, that who just sat in the classroom. And they said, well, who do you want? Do you want the person who just pulled that out of their head? Or do you want the person who knows how to think out of the box? The person who went out and got that additional information. And oftentimes those are people who have grit, uh, who have resilience because they have faced other life experiences. And so as that lived life experience is a form of cognitive diversity, particularly if you can use your existing cognitive gifts for problem solving. And then you have this extra layer of capacity to think under pressure or to think outside of the box that really shapes, you know, a team to have that kind of person on it. And if you have multiple people like that, it works. The other thing that the data shows us is that psychologically, when we're on teams of people who are just like us, who have the same training or the same background, we expect each other to also fall in line. And we often do. They, they, they've talked about this in the employment world, about how people oftentimes will only hire people who are just like them. So, mm -hmm. and, so and, and what happens is, when those people, one person on that team of like people does not agree, it devolves into chaos. Wow. So the, the the psychological literature suggests that when you have people who are different, people are much more flexible when it comes to hearing other perspectives and teams are much, you know, they're much better able to really think out of the box together. And wow. what that has resulted in, right? Um, this alternative diversity, in addition to sort of skill set and cognitive function that people bring to the table, is they are they have more innovative designs. Um, people are able to solve more problems. Uh -huh. They make more money, right? From a tech perspective, and um, it depends on what your value is. Yeah. But I, I like the solving more problems, yeah. and um, and and that really. We're trying to solve more problems while staying afloat. 
That's right. part of what, you know, the business of medicine. We're trying to solve these problems um, in a way that allows us to operate a space that will continue to be here. I, I have to tell you, though, I really feel, you know, I, I know there's been some controversies about, you know, trying to figure out who Johns Hopkins, the man was, you know, because there are no real papers left. But what I will say, and I, I have stood on this, even in the midst of a little controversy, is that what he wrote on paper was very clear. You know, in 1873, to write that we have to care for people um, regardless of um, race, gender, or ability to pay. In 1873, in the in the situation that was here in Baltimore, on paper, uh, and that we were supposed to have a specific place in our heart in terms of how we were going to care for children here, uh, particularly those who were vulnerable, um, orphaned specifically, um, and for children of color. Um, on paper. That, that That's a part of how I see our responsibility as well. And um, and I find that, that, you know, sometimes people don't, maybe don't do things in in life, um, but expect somebody else to give somebody the resources to try to do it after they're gone away from here. I don't know. But what I will say is, I think that that's a powerful statement during a tricky time in American history for someone to say, I want you to build this thing and I want you to keep these things in mind. So I think that our charge has always been very clear on that someone understood even then the role of diversity. And that is part of why I think it is a core value here at Johns Hopkins. And then one we have to really cultivate in a, right now in a complex sociopolitical uh, context, but that is also still intrinsic to the work that we have to do. So I think we're working hard to try to do that here, to take better care of our patients, to continue to innovate very thoughtfully, uh, to do research that's meaningful, and um, uh, to train, uh, I think, the best physicians, nurses, pharmacists, you know, interdisciplinary social workers across, you know, in the world here. Um, we have to be prepared to train all of them because they're increasingly diverse. And then we also have to be prepared to have them care for an increasingly diverse population of people. No. Um, so yeah. this is a wonderful, it's so amazing. I love the track record and how you've built this, you know, the high retention in your programs and, and kudos to you and the team. As an academic, intellectually, we all get this idea of, as you put it rightly, so cognitive diversity. We get it. It makes sense. And yet, what is it about us? That when we submit a paper or a grant application and it comes back with the dings and the criticisms, you know, the nature of, of, of academic medicine, we're like, oh, they don't get it. Those reviewers, they don't know what they're talking about. Or we get very defensive when we don't appreciate how other people think that when they so poo-pooing our thoughts or our paper's not good enough, the grant's not good enough, they're not thinking like me. So they're dumb. Something's wrong with them because I clearly have it figured out. And those reviewers don't know my space. They don't know the field. They don't know what they're talking about. Where do you get that humility to kind of slow down and say, let's think about, as you call that cognitive, let's consider some alternative way of thinking. Where, where that's the to me to be the paradox that we, you know, we we work so hard to be specialists in something, and then how dare someone come on and Give me something, challenge me on that thought. So how how do you help us to humble ourselves to think that, yeah, you are the expert and there may be alternative ways or just the mere fact that you've got a question 
signifies that maybe you weren't as clear as you thought you were going to be. Maybe when I, you and I were sharing, you 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 not only diversity in, in the professional space, but your staff person who was an engineer who had this mathematical genius that maybe somebody else wouldn't have recognized. Or when I was in Chicago and we're designing, you know, dietary patterns and, and menus for people who are like, I don't eat that stuff. Um, I'm not going to spend hours prepping. Do you not know the realities of my my world? How, how do we humble ourselves to even be able so, to you know, appreciate that? Sure. I mean, so it's interesting. I, I think that, you know, for these big grant applications, we spend months working on them, um, sometimes longer. And um, you put a lot of personal time and effort beyond your what we call effort here at work and what you're spending nights and weekends putting references. You know, you really are working very hard. It's interesting. I do think sometimes people don't get it. I do think that's true. I think that can happen. I think you can write something that's very you're very clairvoyant about. You know, this is why it's important. Um, And I think that it doesn't have the right home. So I think that that also can happen. So I think you have to think very critically about who you send your scholarship to, um, who you're expecting to fund it, you have to also write for that audience. Um, if you're sending it to some place where, you know, maybe they're not interested in uh, clinician scientists um, who are doing this kind of work, they're really interested in basic science, you know, you wouldn't send your clinical paper to the, the group that has a track record of reviewing this. So there's that piece. Um, I think that people who try to pave the way, the second thing is I'll say is need ego. It's important. Um, I think humility is not about diminishing yourself so that um, you lift up others. It's about seeing, um, allowing yourself to still allow your light to shine while you're also appreciating and embracing the contributions or uh, opportunities that can present themselves um, by engaging um, feedback from other people. Uh Um, And you have to begin to view that as a gift. Gee, somebody who volunteered, essentially, I think the NIH maybe paid somebody $250 to to spend hours reviewing your grant, right? And then to go to meetings and to sit and read them, right? Um, Maybe it's a little more than that now. But basically, you know, to, to really go over all these grant applications, someone invested time in that. And they were just giving you a perspective. And I think that I give people... Depends on how big the grant is. If it's like a super big one, I- I'll give you three or four days to be angry, to be oh, devastated and upset. But then I really do ask people, it, whether it's a paper or a grant, give yourself give yourself a few days to be salty, right? Yeah. That's how I describe it. But then you really have to, if you're going to stay here, are you going to move the science forward? Or are you going to try to you know, fulfill your mission, personal mission? Then you have to regroup. And so I used to tell people, I was like, write the letter first, write the one page introduction to the application, which reapplication, which tells, you know, what you're going to do differently. How are you going to respond to those critiques? And I think in responding to those critiques, you have the opportunity to make positive changes to your application. You have the opportunity to make positive changes to your paper that you got back that somebody just didn't get. Well, then write it so they get it. That means that another person, your idea might be on point, but you haven't written it in a way that a reader can understand it or a reader can grasp it. It's interesting because I think that's the other thing that as scientists, we have to work on. And we saw that during COVID-19. We are in the middle of a crisis and people are rejecting, you know, the vaccine, right? Hard to believe, right? That, you know, people are dying all over the world and yet people are like, that's okay, right? And so I think a part of it for science is really that 
we have to also be able to articulate our work, like what's going on here, all that innovation and creativity that our team's been insularly working on. And you have to be prepared to um, explain that to someone else, to both other scientists who may be accessing funding or publishing it, but also to the lay public. And I think that that's a real gift that we always don't process because we're oh. so focused, I think, on the scientific and cognitive, special oh. cognitive skills people have have developed that we haven't focused on their social skills, how this reads to certain communities. or And some right. of that is that other diversity, because I think, oh, the error that people make, too, is that 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 cultural, ancestral, and other diversity that people bring to the table is not cognitive diversity. It is. Right. And so that's the mistake people make. But really, it's about people reframing and reshifting. We're all disappointed when things don't go our way. Yeah, right. Yeah. But and, we have to we have to have grit here, you know, this kind of institution that we're in. We have to re- reframe, shift, right. and then move it forward in a way that's meaningful. Um, for that to happen in a place like here, it's really important. I think, you know, somebody who works uh, in the in the dean space for people to for faculty and trainees to really have a developmental network of people that are there to support them. I really believe in developmental network theory. And that's a part of it. Um, you need to have people that are there to support you, to let you vent about how awful those people who reviewed my grant are. Right. right. Um, and then that. But then in that group, you have to have the person that listens. That person might not be the same person to say, but hey, wait a minute now. I think they have three points here that you got to take a look at. Right. And, that's um, it, Marie. I, th- right? I like that part of it is that I want to underscore what you just said there is. You know, those of us over all of our institutions around around the world here, not only do we recognize this importance of cognitive diversity and diversity in its fullest sense, we have to then build the culture that allows that diversity of opinion. So it's one thing to say, yeah, you know, we, you know, put all these people on my team, but then you have to be able, Kim, I'm talking to myself, shut up. And then listen to what everybody else has to say. And as you were giving me example, and maybe think before we recorded, you could design the most perfect study and this most perfect, you know, um, you know, any, any solution or intervention. But if you've not listened to all the voices and the, the perspectives and the history and the traditions and the, the wisdom, you may intellectually think that this is, this is what science says, but it's, in my in applied sociology and, and epidemiology, we talk about nothing about us without us. You know, you go into any in city, institution, community, organization and try to, you know, put some kind of intervention there. But if it's completely irrelevant to all the the factors, it's going to flop. So we have to also have that as as investigators and scientists and and people who do healthcare. We have to have that not only the humility but the the um, sensitivity to invite that conversation and no don't just say oh everybody's free to give their opinion here ideally but in reality people know oh she says that but she doesn't really mean it because she's going to steamroll right over you so what you've done is you've obviously built an environment people know it's safe to say um i call you know i call time out here that's not going to work i know that church or i know that neighborhood i know that zip code let me tell you why so that is also a part of our obligation that we're not, again, like you said, we're not trained in this stuff. We're not, why we need marketing, communication. We're not trained in, in these things. So all the more reason why we need people who are there 
to teach us. We're not the keepers of all truth. I think that's true. I think what people didn't realize, though, that there were people on the front lines um, from diverse backgrounds who were making vaccines. Uh, this, this is that, this is that, that's diversity bonus that I'm talking about. They were making the vaccines, right? At the NIH, right? Then there are people who are working from an epidemiological perspective and on the ground public health perspective in communities. You know, there's some, like Philadelphia had this um, uh, uh, physician and, and a group of people that coalesced to transform the uh, vaccine immunization rates in Philadelphia. And we did some of that work here as well. But oftentimes it took people from similar backgrounds who could explain the science to people who they saw getting the vaccines. Um, I think they, all it takes that kind of uh, understanding of, of community-based interventions, of, of uh, how you even develop, take a product and how you market it to people um, for their own health and their own, in a way that they can accept. I think that that's important. But I think when we don't have people who are at the table in all those spaces who can share share some representation. Now, now representation does not mean that person knows all about everything about that that space that they're in. But to some degree, I think it's critically important uh, because they oftentimes, if that's not their perspective or experience, they have access to it in a way that other people might not. And so I, I think that that's, that's the challenge in these nuanced situations is um, is that I do I do think that we also have to be careful at work though. I don't know that every opinion is professional. And I think that people have to understand how their personal views and how their professional how professional expectations line up. Uh, we do have some boundaries here at Hopkins as it relates to how you work with your colleagues, how you talk to your colleagues, um, how we uh, interact with trainees um, that really has to be above board, that are collegial, are respectful, and are thoughtful. And not all perspectives are that way. And so they're oftentimes that people have to bring their best professional self to work. Um, you know, I've also been a cultural competency trainer for now over 20 years. And um, the thing that I learned is that um, allowing people sometimes to space at work, even to unpack that stuff that they've been carrying um, in a safe place has been very powerful. I have worked with teams in which individuals really talked about the challenges that they grew up in, in terms of how, for example, their families thought about people from um, different backgrounds and how it just never settled right with them until they finally found a strategy to do that. And that working on this now diverse team has really freed them of that and um, allowed them to really live a life with the beauty of diversity in it. Um, I mean, I remember the person, they cried at the, at the, it, because it was just this powerful feeling to now be in this space where one could even say that safely and say, you know, this is how my family is. And I've been working against this my whole life, you know, since I was a teenager. I knew it wasn't right. And um, and now I'm free of that. And now I'm helping populations that need me. And um, I feel, you know, I feel good that I can stand in this space. And and then that empowers the team and the team says, well, doggone, you know, this person has, you know, come out of this space where they are very, you know, um, you know, dimensional and thinking about diversity. And um, 
look how powerful that is, transformative that is. Yeah. And, and and look how much better that person, you know, makes our team. And it's that kind of transformation, I think, that is important. That Because that person then also hears the person that says, well, this is what I face because I'm from this marginalized group. I've managed to overcome most of it, but it's still very painful for me. Um, sometimes in the workplace or out in the community, these are the things that I experience. And then that person says, and I'm also grateful to be able to share it in this space with you all so that we can work together to help change the lives for our patients. And that kind of team, when you get people who can talk like that, um, then you can bring the true self to work. Then you can bring the true self to work. And then you also can um, problem solve together because you know the perspective that that person's coming from. And that some of the, um, the work, cognitive work people have to do around managing themselves at work, it begins to fall away. You can focus on the work. And I think so that, that's like the ultimate goal. That doesn't happen on every team. Sometimes people just bring their best professional self because that's what they can do. And, um, and, and I think that that can be a safe place for people. So I think it ranges. You can have this very fluid, interactive team that knows a lot about each other. But then you can also have people who know their gifts and strengths, and they can bring those to the table. They can work very efficiently, very effectively. And that also is a very valuable team, as yeah. long as there's mutual respect. Maria Trent, fabulous. Can I ask you uh, another question? What about our colleagues who are not in a diverse urban population? My One of my dear friends is the only African-American woman in this area of Iowa, and she feels it profoundly. What about those of us who maybe live in parts of the country or the world where there's not diversity as we think of it superficially? How do we challenge ourselves if we're in in rural areas or certainly um, areas where just many parts of the world where just we don't have that kind of something like, you know, 62% African-American Baltimore. We don't have that, that, you know, sure. patient population or learner population that we're not getting patients or learners or people who don't look like me. How do we as scientists, you know, purposely, purposively challenge the thought framework and how do we get out of our comfort zones? How, how can, what can we do? How can you speak to that from our colleagues who are maybe like, oh, it's easier in Baltimore, but I'm in fill in the blank and we don't have that. I mean, I I haven't always worked here. So uh, I have been in those environments and and sometimes that environment exists here at work. So let's just be clear. I I talked about the community diversity. I am a 1.4% of African-American professors here at Johns Hopkins. And so I understand how your colleague may feel um, out in Iowa, sometimes at work. So I I, I have total appreciation for that. I, I, um, so you know, that, that's a whole other story. Um, what I will say that I have learned over time are, are two things. Um, there are wonderful people who may not have my shared ancestry um, who can be amazing friends, colleagues, resources, and allies. And if you find those people where you are and there are people who are willing to do that, I oftentimes think of barometers. Sometimes I would ask people like in seminars, do you have a friend without your same ancestry who you're such good friends that you would go and spend the weekend with them and you would stay in their home with them and their family, right? And um, for me, that's a barometer of it. I, you know, I remember when I was a fellow at, at Boston Children's and um, a student at the Harvard School of Public Health, um, it, I was one of the few fellows that we, we had diversity amongst fellows, but like over time, 
But I can remember the the beauty in having um, one of our senior faculty members say, you know, Maria, you know, you want to go to church with me on Sunday. Um, and she went to an African-American Episcopal church, which kind of my, my father went to. And I would just go there and I would feel at home. And I wouldn't have found that space probably without her. Um, and so there was somebody at work who wasn't necessarily my supervisor or, uh, you know, definitely she's high up in the system. And then she included me in some things that she was doing with um, some of the psychologists. And that was just really very grounding for me. But I think I also had a really close friend. Um, and I think of her often because she died a couple of years ago. Um, but she just, you know, she was very different from me. And um, but she was a source of bright light for me and, uh, during my training. And you friended, we could talk to each other about anything. So for me, I have a really uh, open mindset in terms of uh, how I create my developmental network and the closest circle to me are the people that are, you can talk to who are you close. You need those if you're going to just survive an environment that you are, are trying to achieve in ever. You, you, you're going to fail at stuff. You're going to be great at stuff. You need somebody who's going to be a cheerleader, but also somebody who's going to pick you up if you get get down. Um, you need those things. And so I think that I think that there, I, I have to say that there are wonderful people um, in a lot of places, um, it, especially if people want to be wonderful. Um, and one of the first things she did, Surya, you, you know, you and your husband, my husband, Greg, he's like, you and Greg want to come out for the weekend? I, I was like, okay, sure. And, you know, they had this fabulous place. And we, you know, it was, it was amazing. And, um, but I remember I just laughed so much when I sat at the dinner table where she prepared all this food and we just had such a wonderful time. And I, I, um, it's those kind of people who are just built differently in terms of, I think about a kid in my neighborhood, he's growing up and I think he's very diverse, uh, but he's one of the few um, non kids of color who grew up in his neighborhood. And uh, he's, he's going to be built different. And the data suggests actually he's going to be more social, better in the workplace, um, He's going to be very successful because he knows how to navigate people who are uh, very diverse um, in, a, in a myriad of ways um, because of how our community has shifted. And um, and I think that it's really beautiful to watch. I, I mean, his mother also, who's my friend, also models it for him. But I think that it's that kind of environment that we can create even when we are not surrounded by people who have our same ancestry. I don't think that that has stopped my commitment to our goals around workforce diversity here at Hopkins, around training diversity and around student diversity. Uh, we have made a commitment to that as a as a community and um, from the highest levels. And so uh, we still have a lot of work to do um, in our environment in order to ensure that we can meet those goals. Um, and we are looking for people um, who are um um, both from those backgrounds, but also people who are built differently, uh, like a kid in my neighborhood, um, who who can talk to anybody, um, who can think through and solve problems, and who can work alongside people who are different from them. And I think that that's, that's essentially, I think, what we're looking for. Love it. Love it. Open mindset. That's it. To me, I, was, I say, always say that my brain is a zombie because my brain not necessarily want to eat, but I want to eat other brains because my brain is so thirsty for other brains. So how could you not 
want to be curious about all the brains that sit everywhere in all different shapes and forms. And and I like what you're saying, and you're making me think that no matter where we are, we can adopt that open mindset. We can challenge our own brains to stop, you know, and say, well, how else might I think about that? So that's what we do as scientists. We're curious. So just to be more curious. So even if we feel like, well, I can't do that in my fill in the blank division, department, institution, community, neighborhood, state, country, I can't do that here. Can you? We're now the web connects all of us. We can go anywhere and just being open and being curious about what does that brain think about this? Boom. You know, we can't help but advance science if we just kind of like take in all that and um, open, open possibilities. So Dr. Maria Trent, you are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom. I'm going to leave the final thoughts about how diversity and an inclusive mindset can advance science. I think that the most powerful thing to understand is for people, teams, for institutions um, that have uh, a big vision that it's important that diversity is a part of it and that we understand that there are different types of diversity. We highly value traditional markers of uh, achievement here. And we see those as, and we look for just those things and individuals sometimes to bring diversity. And I think what I'm encouraging people to do is to think out of the box about what cognitive diversity looks like um, in our environment and how we can challenge some of those traditional notions in order to have uh, the best workforce, the best research team, the best students, the best trainees here at Hopkins. Um, We're really gonna revolutionize um, uh, clinical medicine, um, science and technology, um, and really um, become the teachers of the future. You know, I'm getting old. So they're gonna be the teachers of the future. And and so I think that that's a part, if we wanna really fulfill our, our vision and our mission here, that um, I think I think we have to stay the course in terms of doing this work. Dr. Maria Trent here at Hopkins. Thanks for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. And we'll all see you all and talk to you next time. Hello there, Faculty Factory listeners. It's your podcast producer, Casey, just checking in with a little update here. Just want to let you know that as of November 1st, 2023, this podcast that you're listening to has had nearly 82,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 94 different countries. And the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org, has drawn nearly 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. This is truly an international platform and we want to invite you to be a guest on this show. Our host, Dr. Kimberly Skorupski, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, and she actually makes it fun. As producer, I'll make the edits. So if you need any edits on the back end, there's no pressure for you to nail it. I can simply make those edits after you record. We just want to hear from you. We want to hear from different faculty around the world so we can all learn from each other. Please reach out if you'd like to be a guest or to nominate someone in our academic medicine community. Community that you think we need to hear from. You can visit the Contact Us page on facultyfactory.org to send us a message there, or simply contact Dr. Skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions.
We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.